Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey, fighting for justice and learning along the way. Today, my guest is Penny Abby Wardina. Penny is New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs. Penny is essentially New York City's ambassador to the global community. She leads the city's global platform for promoting its goals for a more just and accessible society, showcasing the diversity of New Yorkers and sharing policies and best practices with cities and states around the world. Penny and I also have a personal connection, but you'll hear more about that in our conversation. Here it is. Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu, Penny. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I am very happy to be here. And for you to, you know, slip me into your busy schedule. Um, So I think before I start, I should sort of let my listeners know that we go all the way back to 2013. Oh, my God. We won't discuss either of our ages, um, <laughs> but I was your intern back in the summer then at the Clinton Global Initiative, and you were the head of the women and girls team, and I was just sort of following you around doing anything that I could do to help you as you were creating all these cool commitments and initiatives for different organizations and corporations. Um, and and hands down- friends? Do you know how you we're friends? Why? because you were actually extremely useful. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> I feel like I had to keep leaving to go home for random things, but I don't know how. But I mean, hands down, I think I've said this to you so many times, you're obviously my favorite boss, like that still stands. Um, and we have a relationship, as you said, that is now a friendship. And so, I mean, for that, I'm very thankful. Um, but as my favorite boss, I wonder you know, how you came to learn how to be a boss and manage people, if there was something that taught you or just came naturally, because often I think when people have bosses like you, these sexist tropes come up where people are like, oh, she's bossy, she's demanding, she's challenging. And I'm like, or she just gets the job done. (laughs) And that's why we worked out so well. (laughs) Um, You know, I think there are some people that naturally, you know, know how to manage well, et cetera. That was definitely not me. Um, I've had a lot of, um, you know, listen, Monkey just gave me a look and that um, I, I learned how to be a good boss and I'm still in the process of learning how to be a good boss, but you have to learn your lessons, right? I have had some scenarios with team members completely implode in my face. And in fact, CGI was actually an important period because I was getting so, um, I was getting so much done on girls and women with our commitments and working with our, uh, you know, our members like corporations Mm -hmm. and governments. But what I wasn't doing enough of in terms of building a girls and women coalition was working with colleagues within 
CGI, right? Everybody throughout commitments, throughout membership, throughout all of our different communications to understand girls and women. And I was investing so much of my time doing it with our partners and with our members and not with my colleagues. And that to me was like a big learning moment of, you know, you need to bring everybody along with you, right? You can't assume people are just there, especially on an issue like girls and women. I was like, my people get it. Like, good, right? And, you know, they didn't sometimes because, you know, workplaces are also competitive and you shouldn't feed that competition. You should be trying to make people feel like they're all in it to win it with you. That's how you're going to be more successful. So that was like one of my first um, forays into just how do you become successful within an entity as, you know, powerful as CGI, but ensure that everybody feels like they're part of it. And that, um, that I think was a lesson learned that has been very useful for my commissioning over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to take that. I'm not managing anyone right now, but if I ever have to. <laughs> um, so another question is my mom, you know, has always been a speaker and goes around and is introduced as the daughter of, which like I cringe at every time. Um, And she did a speech once and afterwards a man came up to her saying that, you know, he thought he knew all this about her. And she said to him, my resume is not a full explanation of who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as someone who has to go around speaking a lot and engaging with different people, is there something in your resume or introduction that is missing that you think people should know about you? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Auntie would ask that. And I know she's listening. <laughs> and, you know, I just want her to know that it's actually, I ask the form of that question when I interview people too, because resumes are just your professional you know, and your educational experience, I have no idea how you came to this. Like, what is your story? And a resume never, you know, captures that. And I have to say, as I've gotten to where I'm at, and now I get introduced as the commissioner, and I'm on all of these fancy boards, etc. What people don't understand was sort of the struggle and hustle to get here, right? So um, this is, this could be seen as a list of um, sad things that happened to me, but quite honestly, these, this is a list of things that made me who I am and enabled me to have the power that I have. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I'm a 1980s version of a dreamer. My family came here and, um, you know, I was undocumented until I was in my early teens. And the reason I got this opportunity is because of Ronald Reagan's amnesty in 1986. So there is a struggle that is defined by being an immigrant, by being a survivor that has shaped all the decisions that I've made that have brought me here and continue to shape who I am. The Ronald Reagan thing. I've read that before and it still like surprises me. Well, my little fun tidbit, given our political craziness now, is that I have the opportunity and my family does based on Ronald Reagan back in the day. But also all my furniture here at the UN is all of, um, oh, they're all, um, it's um, Rudy Giuliani's old furniture, which I have been promised has been cleaned very well. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I get to be New York you know, ambassador to the global community. Um, and I am a dreamer and I'm a woman of color. And there's just something very ironic about this furniture to me and the work that I get done on it. Oh my God, that is beyond ironic. Well, that you being, you know, global ambassador for New York City takes me into this question. So I moved to the UK to do my master's in international studies and diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was there, Brexit happened. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved back to the States at the end of October, 
then the election happened in 2016. And I was like, I don't know if I'm the person that's causing this bad luck to happen or, or what the problem is. But that taught me that I could not be a diplomat because I, I just, I don't have the face for it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's the patience. There's, there's a lot of patience that is required. Well, yeah. So can you tell us about that? I mean, (laughs) I, I don't know if I could do it. Um, I think if you wanted to, you could, um, and anybody could, I, you know, so just as some background, my agency has been around for over 50 years. New York city is host to the largest diplomatic corps in the world. That's not just the UN headquarters. We have 193 permanent missions, UN affiliates like UNICEF, but we also have 116 consulates and consulates are a different arm of the foreign ministry that are serving immigrant communities in New York city, but around the U S. And so that in addition to about 170 plus um, international economic commissioners, you know, this is a robust group of international um, diplomats and experts that are here in New York City. And just historically, um, this agency had focused on the operational, right? Like the parking program and security issues. And what the mayor and I had a very like clear vision, um, he appointed me back in 2014. That's when he um, came into his first administration. I know it's been, it was actually during um, the General Assembly. So that was a very overwhelming period. But, you know, my interview with him was sitting on the porch of Gracie Mansion and talking about the fact that we have this incredible platform and it hasn't been used to, you know, the something that the mayor and I, and I think everybody that works for this administration believe in is that government should work for the people. We are unabashedly progressive, whether it has been universal pre-K, affordable housing, the way that we dealt with COVID, with how we are rebuilding. And we'll talk about that later now, later in this podcast. But, you know, how do we take that and share it with the global community? But how do we also create an opportunity to exchange practices, best practices beyond borders? And the reason for that is this is not about who's got the new exciting thing. This is about who's done something that is smart, it's been effective, whether it's been in Nairobi or in Paris, and then let's replicate that here. That's how we're going to accelerate impact in our community, taking those good ideas, sharing those ideas, and getting them to our community. And so um, that's essentially what I've been doing. And the reason, you know, the diplomacy part of it becomes both an exercise in patience, but also a really interesting place to play is that I have to serve all 193 countries in the same way, right? I can't just have favorite countries over here or say, I'm not going to talk to you because you're too small Marshall Islands. It's like, no, it's absolutely not. It's finding the areas in which we have commonalities. And that's where the, the exercise of, I think, Ubuntu comes in is because, you know, I am interacting with countries that have real issues around um, women's rights, human rights. There's, there is, you know, and, and now I'm representing a country that's having those challenges too, right? And there is a, um, there is something about looking for good, um, looking for an ability to connect. Because if you do want to change people on where they are in women's rights or human rights, you have to be at the table. They have to be willing to talk to you. And so you have to be willing to listen. And so that has been the way that I have taken on diplomacy is finding a commonality and understanding how we can work together. And so we've used the sustainable development goals, which have been phenomenal as a common language and framework. Um, And just ensuring that everybody feels heard, you know, whether you are Guatemala or the UK or, you know, Liberia, at the end of the day, we are going to serve you 
um, in the same way and have the same conversation with you. And I'm going to make time for you. I like that. Um, you in that you mentioned COVID. And what I wanted to ask was, you know, about the greatest challenges you find in your work. But now I think yeah, they're probably tenfold with COVID. Um, yeah. So what do they look like now? Um, you know, we have so we're five months into it. So let's not forget New York City was the epicenter of the pandemic. It's almost been five months. Yeah, we're in August, babe. And this, you know, hit back in March. Um, and there was a moment where my team and I, we became, you know, procurement officers from foreign governments for PPE, trying to figure out how do we, um, you know, who can we get ventilators from? You know, the UN gave a historical donation to New York City of surgical masks. I mean, just unimaginable things happened um, during those three months. And then we went into lockdown and shelter in place. I'm in my office right now, but there's a sign on the door that the day that we closed, it's like March 16th, right? I mean, this is August 5th. It's it's just been an extraordinary period. And what we have realized is that there is so much as an administration we've had, we've had, we've, we've had to pivot into, right? There is an economic crisis. We are now focusing on four realities, and that is ensuring that people have a roof over their head, enough food to eat. We have a food czar. We are providing millions, tens of millions of meals um, because now people who thought, who never expected to be unemployed are unemployed. Um, Make sure that they have um, access to healthcare and our health systems and safety. And within that, you know, we're still dealing with the ramifications of the fact that it's our black and brown communities that got hit the hardest, right? So mm-hmm. quality that already plagued our society, COVID just brought that all out. The mayor um, launched months ago a task force on um, racial justice, racial justice and equity. And I sit on that task force and it's everything that we've had to do, right? You have to think about how do you expand broadband even more aggressively into those communities because it's those kids that don't have access to tablets for all this online learning. learning. So there, it's just been... Um, it has just been drinking out of a fire hose and then still recognizing that New York City has been um, for the last few years under, and I don't want to get too political. I don't know how political you want to get, but you know, the Trump administration. No, we're political. We're good. Okay, we're good. So the Trump administration, <laughs> from pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord to the way that they went after our immigrant communities, you know, I had this moment. Um, at Chatham House a couple of summers ago, you know, talking to a number of dignitaries, European dignitaries, who honest to God thought Trump would course correct at some point, right? Like, he's not going to be that crazy about NATO, you know, and what we saw, and this is where the power of cities and local governments are more important than ever, we saw him go after January 2017. He went after our immigrant communities right away. He went mm-hmm. after DACA. He went, he did all of that right away. So we didn't think that he was going to course correct. And so we were ready around the Paris Climate Accord when he pulled out within 24 hours. The mayor of New York City signed an executive order that committed us directly to that. Working with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, more than 400 U.S. cities have signed on directly to that, right? And so it has shown this power of city leadership. And so COVID has just enhanced that and the voice that we have on the global stage, right? Through the UN, 
with our counterparts in other countries and other cities. It has been, this is how we're taking it on. This is how we're addressing the inequities around our black and brown com communities. This is how we're still protecting our immigrant communities while they're ice raids. This is how we're still committed to the Paris Climate Accord and climate action in this country, how we're doubling down on divestment in fossil fuel companies, for example. And so this has proved um, an urgency for us to be um, not only doing the work that we're doing in our community, but sharing that work. And so um, it has been exhausting. My team has been incredible. We have shifted all of our programming online, um, but we're also still, you know, you know, working with and um, supporting our diplomatic corps. One of the, you know, most um, powerful things that I witnessed is that most of the diplomats stayed in New York City, right? They didn't go home. Um, and all of their home countries had different um, guidance around how to deal with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. New York City, we just got hit with it. And at some point I had to say, listen, if you're sick, you have to assume you have it. Stay at home unless you're really sick and then go to, you know, and then go to the hospital. But our healthcare system is so overwhelmed right now. I mean, some of the conversations I had with ambassadors and consuls general, but they stayed. They felt like New Yorkers and they supported between volunteering, donations. Um, it has been an extraordinary moment of people coming together. And um, so that is what COVID has done for my work. Um, I have colleagues throughout city agencies that are still drinking out of a fire hose. God, mm -hmm. sanitation workers. We had a tropical storm last night. Trees are down all around the city. You know, our colleagues at emergency management, New York City Health. I mean, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. I mean, I think COVID has probably shown you that yourself, but also your city, you're very resilient. And so with that, I wonder, like, what could you say to my listeners? Like, what should we be doing as a collective to deal with COVID? Because it's not going anywhere. We are going to have to adapt normal practices to deal with it until there's at least a vaccine. Yeah. And I think we still haven't wrapped our head around that yet. And I think part of, um, you know, what broke my heart, my family's in California and they, um, California was aggressive and came out first in terms of sheltering, et cetera. And they did not get hit for a number of reasons. They're far more spread out, you know, other than there's some of the major cities um, than New York City, but they, they saved themselves a lot um, in terms of the number of death and the number of ill from COVID in the early days. And now you're seeing this resurgence. And something that is breaking my heart is the complacency of having done it right, right? This is, this is like basic human nature and psyche, but something that I think my counterparts throughout New York City, New York State, New Jersey, you know, we have this like Eastern block that just got hit so hard. I mean, there were like two and a half months, all I heard were ambulances, you know, yeah. everything that we saw. And so there is not a space I am going into that I am not wearing a mask where I'm not trying to social distance, where I'm very conscious of how often I've washed my hands, et cetera. And these are some basic, basic precautions that have become so politicized that, you know, it, I, can't, I cannot get my head around it. And I have deep sadness and, um, and anxiety about what is going to happen, not only around the U.S., but around the world, because everybody's going to get hit at a different pace, Right. Mm -hmm. Because not everybody's as dense or as open borders as New York City was. And that that 
understanding of the collective is something that I am not seeing in conversations we are having as Americans. And that is breaking my heart because if you do it right, you are going to protect yourself. But protecting yourself does not mean that you can suddenly converge with your 25 friends you haven't seen on a beach. You know, all of a sudden being outside by the water isn't, you know, isn't the silver bullet. And so there is just, I am just really concerned that we are going to be in this for a very long time. You brought up the vaccination. This is my personal opinion, but you know, Trump has done a very successful job, at least in an American context, of eroding faith and trust in our institutions. Um, and that is a very real thing. And so when the vaccination comes out, will enough people take it? I, there's just not a silver bullet coming. Um, and what we need to do as communities and as a collective, both American and global, is understand these basic precautions, believe in the science, listen to your health commissioners, listen to your, you know, listen to to the people that are reflecting on, on the science for this. And what we need to realize is that COVID is directly connected to climate. And this is the kind of urgency that we need to take to climate change. And that, you know, this is this is a long this is a long road we're on. And I just read a beautiful piece um, that was talking about we shouldn't want to go back to the normal, to our old normal, because it's the old normal that got us here. And so we have this opportunity to shape the new normal. I mean, the Black Lives Matter protests have been extraordinary. And what is not only bringing it out, the changes that we are starting to see, but it's also, you know, proving some points of, if you're outside and you're masked, you're largely going to protect yourself. We did not see the spikes that we thought we would after those mass gatherings. So mm -hmm. how can we take all of that momentum and how can we create this new normal is what is I'm looking forward to. Um, getting our sense of collective together is what I'm most scared of. Um, look at what happened in New York City. But again, look at what happened in China. Look at what happened in Italy. Why didn't we learn all those lessons, right? It's like, do we have to keep learning lessons? We shouldn't have to. We should be protecting our community, our kids. So Yeah, I, I think there's something yeah. about emotional intelligence there um, yeah. when we don't learn lessons. But, you know, you mentioned collective, which, again, to me, makes me think of Ubuntu and how we're so interconnected. And you were one of the first people I sent my book to um, because... I think you embody it very effortless, effortlessly. Um, but is there something that, you know, holds you in these tough moments where you're feeling sad and anxious about what's happening? Is, is there a philosophy or a saying or an idea of spirituality that, you know, sort of guides you and keeps you moving? Yeah. I've been thinking about that um, a lot these days, you know, my entire, and I brought this up earlier, but as a survivor of domestic violence, as an immigrant, as an undocumented, it is that connection to most to vulnerable communities that have influenced me to make the decisions and to do the work that I do and the way that I do that work. Um, and that, to a certain degree, is what continues the drive, right? Part of my deep sadness right now is not about my life specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm employed. I'm safe, you know, and I have my health right now. That is like winning the freaking lottery. There's so much to be, I am, that is something I am very aware that I am so blessed about, 
the anxiety and the unhappiness come from understanding that the majority of my community does not have that. And my community is not just New York City. It's Americans. It's looking around the world. I mean, we every day you look at you look at the news and you're like, oh my God, this this um, explosion in Beirut, Beirut. Happened, and that is just unimaginably tragic. And so, to me, what keeps me going is that I can't afford to not keep fighting. I have all of this privilege of employment, safety, and health, for me not to continue to show up and fight, that is a, that is a, um, that is a failure that I'm not willing to accept. And when I think about Ubuntu and the work that you do, you know, and the, the, the um, examples you give, but Mandela and your grandfather on looking for good, that is just kind of a really simple statement. But when you actually try to apply it, it's the hardest thing to do because you have to look for good, not only in individuals, but in circumstances and the circumstances as it is right now, COVID-19, you know, civil unrest, like we haven't seen in the sixties, right? Spanish flu style pandemic and an economic crisis that might be unprecedented. And that is the circumstance that you have to show up, look for the good and continue the fight. And, um, that is what keeps me going. Um, it is extremely difficult right now to continue to show up, but mm-hmm. it's, again, the fight for creating what this next normal is going to look like, and it's going to look pretty damn good because I have friends, family, a community, um, my child. Like, he is going to inherit something better than I did, so... Oh, he better. Otherwise, I mean, speaking of your child, you know, I think letting the youth know, especially ones that come from disadvantaged communities is, is important that they're letting them know that they're capable of what you've done um, is really important to me. And I know that your office has an NYC junior ambassadors program. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I shouldn't have favorite programs, but it is (laughs) awesome. Um, yeah, it was really clear um, early on, you know, people had access. This is New York City. We have five boroughs um, and only a very specific segment had access to the UN and understanding like what was happening there. And remember when I came in um, to my, my, uh, my role in 2014, the global community was coming together around the sustainable development goals. Your viewers might know it um, more as the global goals, but this is really like 193 countries agreed, this is what we've got to do to improve the life of everybody, right? Whether it's climate, gender equity, access to education, they agreed to the set. And one of the things that I noticed with my community is how we had such a disconnect between what was happening globally and what was happening in our community. But everything that was happening in our five boroughs were like little microcosms of what's happening in these global movements. And so I have a brilliant staff they came up with this idea of junior ambassadors where we reached out to our most um, disadvantaged communities. So it's not just DOE, Department of Education, they're charter schools, they're after school programs. But how do we get, get our kids from the South Bronx, East New York, Staten Island um, to be able to connect on issues that they care about, learn about the global movements um, and the collective that they're part of, but recognize that, that they can do something in their community and then they can be 
the change makers, right? Because sometimes when you're in, you know, that's something that I remember being um, a kid, you know, that was being abused and just feeling like, damn, I'm like the only one. Like there was, it, you just you just didn't feel like this was bigger than you. Um, and one of the things that was really important for me with this program were for kids to feel like they can have impact, but that they were part of something larger. And, you know, when the first time I, um, we were like marketing the program. So I was like going to schools and talking to seventh and eighth graders. I was speaking to like 300 students in a, in a school in, um, in Staten Island. And here are a couple of facts. The principal told me that more than 70% of his students had never left the island of Staten Island. What? Yeah, that is, that is some, and think about it. So that means that the UN, which is like an hour away, could be in Mars. Like there was just no connection between this community and such a valuable cultural institution in their own community. And then, you know, this is something that my team had suggested. And it was such a good idea, but it's like, how many of you were um, born in another country? I raised my hand. Half of them do. How many of you have parents born in another country? I raised my hands. Almost all of them do, right? And so for the first time, they're also seeing leadership and an ambassador that look like them, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a woman of color that has the same similar experiences as these kids. And to me, that is part of what you're doing with this podcast, what you're doing with this book, is that we need to enable the next generation by also saying, like, this is what leadership, this is what power looks like. Um, and this is how we use our power. And so um, the program is in five years. We've had thousands of kids participate. The most important part has been also their educators. Um, these teachers and educators are heroes. In the last few months, they have taken everything online. They have become social workers, right? Why aren't, why isn't so-and-so showing up? You know, like, do they have, they become IT people. How do you, you know, make sure the volume works on Zoom? I mean, they have done extraordinary things. And we were able to take um, junior ambassadors online. The ambassadors all showed up. Part of the program, um, we took our ambassadors, you know, from Panama and to Queens. And so these young people could, like, meet an ambassador and learn about their country and understand why they do and promote the issues that they do for their country at the UN. And so it's been a really powerful experience and it just reinforces that, you know, what young people need to do, and this is what Greta did really effectively, even though there were activists in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia that had been loud and proud longer than she mm -hmm. had been, but it is what it is. But it's on making young people feel like they're part of this global, you know, activism that got that that gets them to do something um here in their community and so the last thing i want to say about junior ambassadors which is the most important thing is that they do all this learning they do all this connecting but their final commitment and i did steal this concept from cgi because i do like the idea of like at the end of the day not all the talking let's do a commitment um is do something in their neighborhood and so they actively, and so we have an end of year program that we used to always do at Queens, at the Queens Museum, which was the site of the first General Assembly um, in New York City. And um, they, uh, Queen, the Queens Museum would essentially like empty it out, empty out their like first floor and the kids would bring all their projects in and then they would all get to meet each other and see what they're doing on their issue, whether it was like eradicating hunger or, you know, working on addressing human trafficking and these kids would be able to talk about these issues, but also show like what they're doing in their neighborhood. And it was, 
It was awesome. We did it online. It was good, but I really miss us all getting back <laughs> together. Am I too old to be a junior ambassador? Do you think you are? Yeah. But you are Ageism. you are awesome old enough to be a special speaker. So come on through. Oh Lord. Oh God. Okay. I love that. Um I think something that I, you know, came to you for when I was at CGI was for advice. And I'm sure I still do that, you know. We did just take, we took a lovely trip to South Africa in 2018. Um, Was that two years ago? Yeah, I know. I was like looking at pictures. It was 2018. Um, It's fine. We're going again soon. But what is the best advice you've received in your life? You know, it actually gets back to that example that I was giving um, about CGI and management and sort of how you own your space. Um, I had a supervisor, um, tell me to bring it down a notch. Like Penny, you are like crushing it. Like everything is like, you know, you're doing a really good job at work. Um, but you're, you know, intimidating colleagues, you know, you're some bad blood is happening. So I'd like you to bring it down a notch. And I remember having, um, a drink with somebody who was, uh, you know, a mentor advisor to me that week. And I shared that with her and she's like, Oh no, honey, you never bring it down a notch. In fact, you bring it up. But what you need to do is be aware of who else you need to bring with you. And that is that moment when I realized that success for an individual, you know, in very, and this is not like success, like I'm going to be president kind of thing. Success just at work in a very specific job has so much to do with how the collective, how the organization, how your colleagues, how your team feels about your success. And so you have to get buy-in at every level with people. Now, I mean, I'm not saying spend all your time doing that, but it is really important to be aware of your environment, your circumstances, the people that create that environment and how you choose to, to engage it, right? And how you choose to, um, to support them and cultivate them to ensure that they understand that they know why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it. And that has really, you know, this was advice from like 15 years ago, it has been so useful. Um, You know, no matter how old you are professionally or even personally, you know, there's that saying, you have to manage up, you got to manage down, you got to manage your peers. That is some truth. And when you think about what that management is, this is where you have to think about looking for good, thinking about how much more you get done with a smile on your face versus an attitude, right? You're always going to get a lot more with honey than anything else, right? And that is why the most difficult, complicated political conversations, you have to be really thoughtful about how you prepare yourself and your external presence for how you show up to it. Um, And so that is the best advice I got because I was able to reshape it, you know, and repurpose it for a lot of different scenarios. I mean, I wonder how I take it if someone said that to me. The bringing it down a notch? Yeah. I mean, I was furious. Yeah, I think I'd be really offended, but I, but I, and it would, and I don't want to be managing for someone. I don't want to be managing for people that I intimidate. Like that's, you know, that's something personal to that person that is intimidated is my thought. But I get where you're saying about the, the buy-in. Right. And I'm not saying, you know, the buy-in is important and you know, you know, those people, right. You know, this is, it's, it's not that I then, when it became best friends with everybody, you just, it's recognizing 
um, you know, where the weak points are. And the weak points are those people that can come after you, right? And so that becomes, you actually need to spend a lot more time thinking about how you manage that versus the person that thinks you're just doing great work and to continue how it is. Like, great, thank you, noted to the person that thinks you're doing great work. And those that are concerned about you, it's actually worthwhile, you know, even if you don't want to invest time in engaging with them for different reasons, because you personally are like, I don't want to give time, you need to understand where they're coming from. Because if they come at you, you need to be prepared for it, right? And so this is where it becomes, and then people, everything's on a spectrum. Are they really <laughs> going to come at you? Or are they, you know, just kind of, you know, gossiping about you every mm -hmm. once in a while? From the side. Right. And then how harmful is that gossip, right? And then you, but as long as you have that awareness, you know how to show up with them. And you know how to show up with other people that are around them. And so I'm just saying like to, to as you get, go up that ladder in any scenario, you're more and more in a glass house. Um, I had to learn that in a hard way because I went from being, you know, a, a director at a, at a philanthropy to being, you know, a very public political appointee who has a global platform with, the United Nations and New York City, two of the most extraordinary brands, <laughs> you know, in the world. And it's, it, it really became important to recognize that glass house and understand how to, to manage the people and the personalities and the politics around that. I like that. And, you know, we're both women of color. So with that, I feel like I've, whenever I've done interviews, I've sort of been on this like world tour of talking about boundaries. Like I just love boundaries. Now. <laughs> um, and I think that's something that women, marginalized groups don't always put forth. And so I would say, you know, when people ask me about self-care for me. I say boundaries. My friends will know what I can give them and when I can give it. And if I can't do it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And I'm not going to feel bad about it in that moment. And so what, especially now during COVID, does self-care look like for you? <laughs> um, Muggy, that comment about boundaries just reinforces that as of this date, you are mother, you are childless. Because <laughs> yeah. there are no boundaries as you and know. we're staying this way. <laughs> so self-care um, right now just like kind of doesn't exist. Um, and the reason I am not spending too much time thinking about that um, is because COVID has just made everything so extraordinary. You know, it has been drinking out of a fire hose in my role and what has happened in the city during spring. Um, it is the fact that my husband and I, and honestly, he is a brilliant partner. And if I have any moments of self-care and that is just, you know, watching Netflix at night, it is mm -hmm. because he has shown up not 50%, but 70% in terms of childcare with our four-year-old recognizing what I've been going through. And, but I've got a four-year-old at home. There have been no boundaries. There have been no moments for self. I have not been without my child for five months. And I'm going to say something kind of controversial, but when I had him, I had no um, desire to ever full-time parent him. So. <laughs> well, there's your lesson. <laughs> like, oh, there you go. Um, so, you know, Part of the reason self-care isn't a priority right now is that we, it's not just me, it's colleagues that I work with that are on my team. We 
drank out of a fire hose because we had to. COVID came out. And now as we are emerging as a city and a state and as a region, and there's some normalcy, we're in phase four now, um, normalcy being like you can go outside and like right. grab a drink with somebody at a, you know, outdoor restaurant. Um, the reality is, is that we're in a marathon. And I, my self-care right now is getting my head, my emotional and mental space recalibrated to recognizing that we were, we did a sprint. We did this drinking out of a fire hose. We came out of it and we are nowhere near over. Nope. And that to me, when it comes to how we are going to take on and tackle what policing looks like, you know, how we are going to address racial inequity and justice issues in this city, in this country, how we are going to do that within an economic crisis, how we are going to do that with an election that is going to be extremely difficult. I think anybody listening to this podcast should not think that the next few months are going to go by easy. We are undermining our, you know, postal system. We are undermining the way people trust and feel about mail-in and absentee uh, ballots. This is, this is going to be a marathon. And so my self-care right now is mentally preparing myself for that marathon. And the way that I am doing that is having a lot of conversations with people like you, with my husband, with friends, um, to vent and to start getting myself um, mentally ready for what's going to happen over the next year and a half. Um, and so that is not helpful in terms of a self-care uh, question. I, I love the idea of boundaries, but I, I can't have boundaries. I'm a commissioner. My phone's <laughs> always on. If I go on vacation, something happens, I have to work in that. And that's okay because again, this is the privilege of this post. Um, and I am aware of that privilege and that's why I am, just trying to be very thoughtful and strategic about how I'm paid by taxpayers, how I do this job as well as I can for the next year and a half. And that's why you're the boss and I'm not, <laughs> and I'm okay with it. Um, so what is your greatest hope for humanity? And obviously this whole interview is you answering what you're doing to make that hope a reality, but is there anything else that we may not know that you're doing to make that hope a reality? I mean, my hope for humanity is just fundamentally, there are more people trying to change things for the good. Listen, I, I have this great job, but the people that are literally physically putting their bodies on the line, right? You know, you look at what is happening around this country with the protesters and, you know, what happened in Portland was just extraordinary. Um, to me, that gives me hope for humanity because we will not go down quietly, right? We all have our role in how we are, you know, with my diplomacy, with my office's programming, with this city's progressive policies, we are making change in the way that we can make change and where we're at. But there are so many different levels. It is the way that we have enabled our junior ambassadors to see themselves as change makers and what they're going to do. Like that to me is the hope for humanity. It's the way that I'm raising my son. You know, this is, I'm, I've, I have the responsibility of raising a man in this society mm -hmm. and that is going to make a difference. Um, so that is my hope for humanity is what we all are doing to show up and, and have impact. Um, it's getting harder and harder. And I hope, you know, the self-care thing, your listeners, um, 
I have this conversation with my friends, but how do we keep this going for the long term? Like that, that truly is where we're all going to have to dig in deep um, because it really, your question, you know, is like, what's your hope for humanity? But it does feel like this is one of those moments that we can, we can turn around the way that we treat mother earth. We treat our most vulnerable. I mean, this is, this is that moment. So the trying time. Okay. Well, this one is just for me. Um, Oh, <laughs> when are you running for president? <laughs> well, fun fact, I cannot run for president. Oh, because you weren't born here. Yep, that's right. But your son can run for president. <laughs> but my son can run for president. I, um, instead of running for president, um, I would just hope to continue to be in roles where I can um, be an entrepreneur in spaces that people don't think there can be entrepreneurs. Um, I've been an entrepreneur in government, um, and I think we've done a really good job with um, the way that New York City and cities around the world are having an impact um, on global issues. So that's pretty awesome. So we'll see what I can do next. All right. I'll take what I can get. Okay. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with me, Penny. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.